Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Can you hear Check. me? One, two, Hello. three. Check. Is this on? Okay. Telling the story of science testing. Right here. Welcome to the Odyssey Podcast. Students telling the story of science. Today, episode one, HIV, Overcoming Skepticism. HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. The virus can be transmitted from one person to another in four bodily fluids, blood, breast milk, semen, and vaginal fluid, and causes the infected person's immune system to fail. It does this by invading and killing their immune cells. When too many of their immune cells die, they develop a condition known as AIDS, which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. To be clear, HIV is a virus, while AIDS is a syndrome. HIV causes AIDS, but is not the same thing as AIDS. When HIV first became known in the early 1980s, an overwhelming majority of the people infected eventually developed AIDS and ultimately died. But with current treatments, this is no longer the case. People who are HIV positive can now take antiretroviral therapy, or ART, a kind of medication that can stop the virus from replicating. This medication is so effective that if taken consistently, it can stop transmission of HIV from one person to another. But there's still a lot of work to be done before HIV is a thing of the past. And the barriers to developing a cure are not only scientific, but also social, economic, and even political in nature. Nevertheless, we've come a very long way in only 30 years. To honor these advances and to discuss the future of HIV medicine, we talked to some of the leading scientists and doctors in the field. Dr. James Curran has been researching HIV since the very beginning of the epidemic. In 1981, he coordinated the AIDS Task Force at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and soon became Assistant Surgeon General. During this time, Dr. Curran was instrumental in creating policies that led to the dramatic reduction of HIV infection from blood transfusions. Today, he is Dean of the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. We spoke with him about the early days of his work, how stigma can be a barrier to good health, and the ability of science to overcome skepticism. Columbus, Ohio, I had, I was running the community-wide STD prevention and research projects. A lot of us had contacts with the gay community and knew a lot about STDs in the gay community. So when the first cases of pneumocystis pneumonia were reported, um, the branch to whom it was reported was headed by a veterinarian. Um, really? It was a parasitic disease branch, right. and they used to think that's what this was. Proto they used to think it was a protozoa. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and so they asked me to, it was, Reagan had just been elected president, and it was a hiring freeze and no money. And, but the CDC kind of sends people to a problem anyway, even if we didn't have any money. So they asked me to coordinate the activities of the various people working on this for three months, and that lasted 15 years. And one of the problems they have with physicians is they're, they're unwilling or unable to talk to people about sexuality. Now, homosexuality is, a, is sort of another version of that. Uh, and even among people who are comfortable in talking about sexuality, they may be uncomfortable in talking about homosexuality, right. which was a, something for, in AIDS was crucial. 
Now, I'd been, I'd had some exposure to that through the hepatitis B trials and, and through STD work in general, but it, it uh, became crucial to be comfortable with that when you deal with AIDS, and particularly a public figure or public work. And I'd say that my, many of my relationships or discussions with people in the gay community, watching how this epidemic uniquely hit them, uh, was very formative in response. And I have one story I'll tell you if you want a story. Yeah. Uh, we were in the middle of, of, uh, of two national STD conferences in May and June of 1981, in which we would go to both conferences because we were headquarters people. Uh, and we would talk to people about whatever. And the draft of the MMWR on pneumocystis was coming out, so we went at, in these conferences and talk to our colleagues in the gay community or doctors taking care of pe people in the gay community to see if they'd seen these things. When I got back to Atlanta, after the first five cases were reported, there had been some other reports coming in with, about Kaposi sarcoma. And they wanted somebody to go to New York to see a patient. And I had never seen a patient with Kaposi sarcoma in my entire life, but I was the guy. So I went to New York. Uh, and I, I went to NYU and Bellevue Medical Center, and there was a woman there, polio victim in her, her youth, who was an oncologist named Linda Laubenstein. And so Linda was in a wheelchair, and she took me up to see her patient, and her patient was exactly my age, and he had come from a Catholic prep school in Detroit like I did, and they were rivals in their... Catholic boys prep school leagues and academically. Uh, he might have been a little smarter than I was, so he went on to Yale and I, I went on to Notre Dame and Michigan Med School. We went to, 10 years later, we're back in New York. And he is an actor, um, a gay man, handsome guy, but he has these little blotches on his face of Kaposi sarcoma. And, um, we talked about, you know, being raised Catholic in the suburbs of Detroit, going to prep school. And his major concern was that these blotches on his face would be, would hurt his acting career. And they're all asking me what I know about Kaposi sarcoma. That was a short discussion. <laughs> um, and what caused this, and that was an even shorter discussion. Um, but I spent 40 weeks in New York the first year. And back and forth every week, and uh, many times he had been treated. At the time, they didn't know what to do, so they gave him very uh, advanced chemotherapy, which actually made things worse because it suppressed the immune system and probably accelerated his demise. But I saw him three or four more times at Bellevue when he was hospitalized in the emergency room, and he went from a, you know, a tall, strapping, handsome actor uh, to uh, a withered away, uh, bald, uh, uh, dying man. And I was there the week before he died. And uh, what I always thought about was how similar we were rather than how different we were. And, and it, it was totally circumstantial based upon something which we eventually found out to be due to a virus. 
And that helped me realize something my father used to always tell me is that people are more alike than they are different. But you have to keep on applying that over and over again throughout life as we look at differences and similarities. You know, as, we, as a country changes ethnically, as we all change geographically. And you have to have kind of an, an, an inner understanding of difference to appreciate how alike you are. And you can't really work together unless you appreciate how alike you are. So when we first saw this, and we were looking for clues, uh, most of us thought it was something that was sexually transmitted. And there's nothing that's only sexually transmitted through homosexual men. Some things are more common. But, you know, it, it's ridiculous to think that. But um, there was a strong sense of denial. And, and it was because, partly because it was so much more common in gay men, as it still is, mm -hmm. and that people started writing papers about the protective vagina, how the vagina, and, and there were articles about this oh, in the scientific <laughs> literature, about how this was, you know, that it was all anal intercourse that caused it, and that if women didn't have anal intercourse, they'd be okay. <laughs> which was getting at two taboos at once. Right. The homosexual taboo and the anal intercourse taboo. Right. I used to say that the definition of promiscuity was people who have at least one more sex partner than I do. <laughs> and everybody said, oh my God, the United States is going to be just like Africa. You know, this epidemic that was in gay men in the United States is going to spread throughout the heterosexual population and kill all of us. And that was because partly the, the, the people who were in such denial were also in such ignorance about right. heterosexually transmitted infections in the U.S. So one of the things that AIDS has taught us is that innovative science can overcome skepticism. I mean, and so the idea that you would be able to monitor progress of somebody with HIV infection by doing viral loads was unheard of. I mean, you've got to be kidding me that you could actually do this, let alone have therapy. But we've seen not only the discovery of the virus, but the discovery of a treatment, and then the discovery of measuring the effect of the treatment, and then the cocktails that actually work, and then the way to combat all these things. And none of these things were thought to be positive. The skeptics said, we're never going to do it. So that's why I say, for example, what we need now is curative therapy uh, and a vaccine. Now, these are big, big, uh, bodacious goals. Uh, there are a lot of people who say, well, never going to have curative therapy. How can you cure this? It's integrated into the host DNA. It'll just hide until you stop the drugs. This is impossible to cure. Others will say, how can you develop a vaccine for which there's no satisfactory human immune response? This is being simplistic about it. But innovative scientists have overcome skepticism, not just in this field, but in others. And I remember in 1987, when the results were released, I was on a conference call when they're giving these results, you know, how elating that was. There was actually something to be done for people, all of whom had a death sentence. Everybody with a positive antibody test was going to die. I mean, we, we really believed that there was 100% fatal illness, and it still is in the absence of therapy. So this gave people hope, and it wasn't really until 1995 that the drugs were shown to be effective in cocktail form and really prolong life in a, in a really meaningful way. When you look at, the, at uh, where it's occurring, it's, uh, 
it's occurring in, uh, in gay men, and particularly African-American gay men, where it's increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's occurring in areas where uh, poverty intersects with sexual risk and STDs and fairly high prevalence of HIV to begin with. Uh, and it's occurring throughout the United States. There are many epidemics everywhere. This past year saw an explosion of cases in, in uh, white heterosexual drug users in southern Indiana, mm -hmm. going from one case to 145 cases. Uh, and, and so it, it's potentially everywhere. But in the South, you have this confluence of uh, HIV risk, um, poverty and STD risk coming together. The, the biggest danger, the two biggest dangers in improving these things at, the, at, a, at a population level is um, ignorance, that is we don't really know about the difference because we don't have the data. And the second part of it is uh, complacency. That's the way it always is. Well, that's the way, I mean, the United States has four times the rate of AIDS of any industrialized country. So it's much higher than Canada, much higher than any country in Europe, you know. And, but we just say that's the way it is in the United States. Well, why? Why does it have to be higher? You know, don't they have the same risk populations? Don't they have the same behaviors in these other countries? So in order to improve the health of a population, you have to redefine what's acceptable. You have to break out of the complacency. And you do that with information. You do it with persuasion. You do it with data, with strategies getting people together to work together. We just can't let people sit back and say, that's the way it is in America. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, that's not true. It can be better. We have a big country with widespread disparities in income and uh, opportunity and health insurance and a variety of things like this. Mm -hmm. We have a legacy of, uh, of racism in our country, which, is, which always harms everything. Uh, and we got started first. And, and that may be the most important and the and least popular one to say, but with HIV, prevalence begets incidence. You know, the, you can never give up and say, well, we educated, you know, we talked about sex education 20 years ago. Why do we have to keep talking about it? We do because every, and you just keep at it. You know? yeah. Every year in the United States, more than 4 million people have sex for the first time. I didn't know that. No, nope. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, and, and in 10 years, that means there'll be 40 million people having sex for the first time. Right. So if you decide not to talk about AIDS very much, you've got 40 million people who are kind of wandering into their first sexual experiences without a, a pervasive awareness. Right. You have to be pleased with the scientific progress, particularly in the development of antiretroviral drugs that has, has paved the way for antiviral drugs for hepatitis C and hepatitis B, you know, and, uh, and well, well, technologically, we really need curative therapy and a vaccine, not just one or the other. I'd be happy with one or the other, but we need both. We need, the vaccine itself is gonna have trouble if it's, if it's almost 100% effective and it can be given to everybody and it prevents infection, it's still, you've got 40 million people out there who are infected who are mm -hmm. going around infecting 2 million more every year. That's uh, gonna be hard to catch up, mm -hmm. particularly with all these people having sex for the first time every year. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, and think about how many in the world that is.
Dr. Curran just touched upon two concepts that are being heavily researched, an HIV vaccine and an HIV cure. We will discuss those very soon, but before we do, let's learn about the treatment approach that has had the most success to date, long-term antiretroviral therapy. Dr. Dennis Leota is a professor of chemistry at Emory University. He created a drug called emtricitabine, or Emtriva, which was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2003 for the treatment of HIV infection. Today, Emtriva is in use by the vast majority of HIV-infected patients in the United States who are taking antiretroviral medication. We spoke with him about how he developed this drug and what it's like to look back on a scientific career that resulted in a game-changing therapy. If you were diagnosed with AIDS, it was a death sentence, and uh, it was just um, terrible to see. And I felt like I had to be able to do something. And what actually got me into this area was that the first HIV-approved drug was AZT, and for a while it was in very short supply. And it turned out uh, the reason was that they used the starting material, thymidine, they were isolating it from, of all things, salmon sperm. Mm. And so, you know, there's only a limited amount of that yeah. around. <laughs> and uh, as a consequence, this, uh, the supply was, was a limiting factor in getting AZT. And so I said, I don't know enough about virology to actually design compounds on my own, but I'm a pretty good chemist, and maybe I could figure out some ways of making them more efficiently mm -hmm. so that there could be broader access. So that was actually my uh, impetus into getting involved in HIV research. Uh, there are about a trillion replications per day in HIV. So that's 10 to the ninth replications, a trillion replications, and um, about one in every 10,000 replications leads to a mistake, a mutation. With mutations, there are really only two outcomes. The mutation can be lethal to the virus, that is, one of the amino acid residues switching to another becomes intolerable and that that strain simply can't replicate, so it just dies out. But when that doesn't happen, uh, you produce a series of, of new strains, all of which have different replication competencies. Right? So the one that's the most efficient at replicating, we typically call the wild-type virus. This is the standard that we use typically, and everything else other than wild-type virus is, by definition, less efficient, less robust at replicating. So when you give a drug to a patient, it will suppress some of those mutant strains, but certainly not all. So the ones that it suppresses 
and it's usually, the wild type is usually amongst those, those levels go down, but the others that it can't suppress, those levels continue to rise because there's nothing to control them mm -hmm. from, from continuing to replicate. We call that a selective drug pressure. So when we put a selective drug pressure on, we'll, we'll hold down the replication of certain strains, but we won't affect others. So the composition of mutants in that new virus under selective drug pressure changes, right? So now you can imagine that if you had two drugs or three drugs, and each of them held down a different portion of those mutant strains, that together, they could, they could, at least in principle, do a great job in controlling overall viral replication. So that's the theory of resistance, and that's why we give a so-called cocktail, a combination of typically three drugs. My colleague Raymond Shinazi and I, who, who collaborated together on uh, the development uh, of um, two important drugs that are now part of uh, 10 different FDA combination therapies. Uh, so one of the compounds is, um, is called Epivir uh, or Lamivudine. We, we talked earlier about resistance and the compound was looking pretty good in terms of, of its potency, uh, but it became clear relatively quickly that it developed some resistant mutants that were um, very hard to overcome. So you can imagine if a mutant is two or three times more um, virulent, let's say, than, than the wild-type virus, um, you could just increase the concentration of the drug a little bit and you're okay. But uh, if you produce um, a hundredfold more of a mutant than the wild type, then it's going to be very hard to, uh, to ramp up the dosing to be able to control that mutant. Uh, so one of the things that was very um, interesting was that um, this drug Apivir and also the same was true for Emtriva, mm -hmm. which is also called Emtricitabine. Uh, both of these developed this single mutant and it, um, it looked like it was going to destroy any possibility of these drugs being used uh, effectively. But um, a, a number of groups, including our group here, um, uh, found that it was synergistic with AZT. And specifically what happened was that this one mutant that um, neither of these drugs could control was uh, very susceptible to AZT. In fact, um, AZT uh, was 50 times more potent against 
this mutant than the wild type virus. Mm -hmm. So when we realized that, we collectively, uh, here at Emory and uh, some other groups around the world, this was really the first rational design of a combination therapy because AZT, which had all these nasty side effects, now you could use it at much lower concentrations mm -hmm. when you used it in combination with this drug because it was so sensitive to this one mutant that, um, that either Epivir or Emtriva produced. And so this, the first double drug combination to be approved by the FDA was a called Combavir, and it's a combination of Epivir and AZT. And it's still in use today, and it's still um, a very good combination. And now we, we've taken that two-drug combination and added th a third drug, and sometimes uh, different, in different ways. And now there are a variety of three-drug combinations that, uh, taken together, really do a great job in suppressing viral replication. And a tripla is um, three drugs in one pill that you take once a day. So nice. Uh, so if we can control viral replication in all the infected cells until they die, then in principle we're okay. But if, um, if you have these long-living cells that don't replicate, um, then we have, we have issues. And so that's part of the reason that it's a chronic infection. Uh, but we don't have a cure. The scientific journey from using long-term antiretroviral therapy to having an HIV cure is enormous. Dr. Guido Silvestri has been studying AIDS in humans and primates since the early 1990s. He is an editor of the Journal of Virology and is chief of the Division of Microbiology and Immunology at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. We spoke with him about some possible approaches for curing HIV and the scientific discoveries currently underway in Atlanta. All right, so most of the research that we're doing right now is focusing on uh, the idea of curing HIV infection, um, eliminating HIV infection. So, uh, as you know, Dave, for a long time, AIDS was a death sentence. You know, people would just get infected and, and, and die. There were no therapies able to uh, successfully fight the virus. Then around um, 94, 95, 96, there was a big uh, burst on, on um, the development of antiretroviral drugs, drugs that can block uh, the virus. And that has been an incredibly important turning point in, in our understanding and management of the infection. <clears throat> Unfortunately, those drugs are great in reducing mortality and morbidity, but they do not cure the infection. So people remain infected and need to take those drugs forever. And that is a suboptimal situation from many points of view. Is, is These drugs are expensive, they have uh, potentially side effects, occasionally people become resistant, uh, and uh, they don't really uh, eliminate all the problems completely. So there is what we call residual uh, morbidity and mortality that is partly related to the virus that is still in the body, partly related to the disturbances uh, of the immune system that were caused by the virus prior to the initiation of antiretroviral therapy and are not fully reversed by, by those drugs. 
Right, so the, the, the obstacle, you know, to getting rid of the virus is that in, in, in the body of, of every um, infected person with, um, uh, that is treated with antiretroviral therapy, there is a pool of cells that we call the reservoir. Those are cells that are latently infected. They do not express virus. They do not produce virus. So they cannot be attacked by the current antiretroviral drugs that we have. They cannot be seen, killed by the immune system. And uh, therefore, they persist there for forever, basically. And, and because of those cells, we know that if we stop antiretroviral therapy, the virus will come back and, and people will go back to have a, an uncontrolled infection. And then these cells are difficult to handle also because we don't have an easy way to identify them. We don't have uh, an easy way to, to count them and, and to also determine whether they contain virus that is replication competent, virus that is healthy and able to um, re restart the infection, or whether they contain virus that is um, dead virus that wouldn't really do much. You know, and, and a large fraction of those cells, in fact, contain virus that is dead. So the challenge is identifying the ones with the virus that is alive and dangerous and then uh, figuring out ways to kill it. Uh, one approach is, uh, is called the shock and kill. So the idea is that uh, those cells uh, can be reactivated, can be induced artificially to re-express the virus. That's the shock phase. And once they uh, re-express the virus, they can be killed by the immune system, and that's the kill phase. And this is a strategy that is being, is being, is being explored by, by several groups. There's a second um, strategy that um, <coughs> a colleague of mine likes to refer to as the Sudan schmooze uh, strategy, which means that um, the idea is to um, reduce this reservoir of latently infected cells by reducing the level of <coughs> immune activation, because the idea is that immune activation uh, and, and the residual virus replication creates a vicious cycle that keeps the number of these cells relatively high over time. So by reducing uh, the immune activation as much as possible, uh, you will progressively uh, let those cells you know, um, disappear you know, over time because you don't refuel their, their number. Uh, and then there's a third approach that uh, another colleague of mine likes to refer to as the push and vanish. And the idea here is that uh, um, not all uh, CD4 cells, the cells that are the immune system cells that are infected with the virus, not all of them have the same half-life. Some of them live for years and years, and others only live for days. So if you get the virus to go from cells that uh, live years into cells that live days, then uh, the reservoir will disappear, will vanish, if um, just by virtue of what is the lifespan of those cells in vivo. So push part would be to make the virus go from uh, a long-lived to a short-lived cells, and the vanish part will happen on, on its own. And again, the push part is really not, it's not like transferring the virus from one cell to another, but, but making the cell that is long-lived with the virus to become short-lived by uh, favoring differentiation of those cells. So these are, you know, every time we do research, you know, we, we like to think of it as you know, targeting a specific area. Um, so that could be, you know, AIDS, could be Alzheimer, cancer, you name it, you know, um, atherosclerosis. But, but the reality is that, you know, especially when you do basic research, you know, when you understand uh, basic aspects of how the biology works, you know, how the immune system works, how the brain works, how the uh, blood vessels work, 
um, that knowledge usually ends up being applicable to uh, conditions that were not in the original plan. And, and that is not really serendipity. That is the way science operates. You know, we uh, create a, a, you know, a repertory of, of, of knowledge, of observations, of paradigms, and, and they uh, then become useful for, for other things. And that's why you always want to find you know, this nice balance between um, what is directly translatable into uh, a specific disease, which, because ultimately you know, we want to cure, you know, treat those diseases, but also having a large enough base of, of, um, of knowledge, of fundamental knowledge that can be, uh, can, can work, you know, as the foundation for, for, um, for those translational studies. You know, we've been struggling uh, in our effort to make a, an effective AIDS vaccine. It is, um, HIV is a virus that is really, really difficult to, um, whose transmission is really difficult to prevent by, by classical means, you know, the, the vaccine concepts that have worked so well for other diseases, um, you know, polio, pox, uh, uh, smallpox, diphtheria, etc. You know, they don't work really for, for HIV, we know that. So we have to go sort of to another level and that has been really challenging. But in that area, there's been some, you know, amazingly interesting discovery, in particularly the fact that we now know that uh, the immune system has the potential of producing um, antibodies that really block HIV incredibly well. Uh, with incredible power and, and potency and, and, um, and uh, breadth of neutralization. So if we, so we know that that is possible because people do it, you know. Now the challenge is to make uh, uninfected people do it so that they will be protected from, from the virus and not just um, doing it after the fact, after being infected. So I think the message from AIDS research is actually quite simple. So um, AIDS uh, was a um, took the, the American public and, and the world public, you know, as a major storm. You know, it started in the late 70s, early 80s as this unknown disease. A progressively increasing number of victims, you know, went from, you know, a few cases to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands. And at some point, it was clear that the impact of, of this disease was, was affecting our society on any level. And HIV research uh, basically uh, was the uh, the wall was the was the, the, the defense against uh, this this disease. In you know, within a few years, we were able to identify the virus, to define its structure, to develop drugs that progressively, you know, better and better, were able to block the virus. We got to the point that now you get diagnosed with HIV, and you know, you have a close to normal life expectancy. You know, enormous progress has been made, and that sort of tells should tell the public that if you let the scientists work and you give them uh, enough support so that they can you know, compete for, for the best projects and, and, and you know, be funded and, and do their work, you know, then very good things happen and problems get solved. While some researchers are looking for a definitive cure for HIV, others are searching for a definitive method of prevention. Dr. Jeff Safrit is front and center in the development of an HIV vaccine. He is the former director of clinical and basic science research at the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, which you can learn more about at pedaids.org. Currently, Dr. Safrit is the director of research alliances at the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. 
we spoke with him about the search for an HIV vaccine and the global impact of HIV research. As long as there are more people getting infected every day than there are people on treatment, a vaccine is always going to be the the ultimate goal. In in fact, it's probably one of the most difficult agents to or infectious agents to develop a vaccine against because of uh, the nature of the virus itself. Well, it, it is a, a virus changes a lot um, that is different in all parts of the world. You know, the, the virus that is the majority of people in the U.S. are infected with is, is different from the virus that the majority of people in Africa are infected with. Not that, a va- that one vaccine couldn't protect against both, but it, it just makes the vaccine research a little bit more complicated to to think about. Vaccines are meant to stimulate an immune response against an invading pathogen. And HIV is that much more difficult to to work with because it destroys the immune system that is required to uh, generate an effective immune response. And with very many of the other infectious diseases, uh, there are people that actually get infected and then their immune response kicks in and they, they get healthy, they, they survive. With HIV, that there are very few people that actually do that if there's no treatment at all. And so it might take a long time, but um, it, what it means is that we don't really understand what a successful immune response against HIV really is. And that's what's been made it so difficult to uh, develop a successful vaccine. One of the important things um, that um, investing so much in HIV research has done, uh, actually though, is is teach us a lot about the immune response to infectious diseases in general and, and how to potentially use that to attack malaria, to attack uh, uh, TB and, and other uh, infectious agents like Ebola, um, and and you know get to uh, therapies and vaccines, et cetera, much quicker for those uh, other uh, agents um, than we might have have otherwise. We have discussed the history of the HIV epidemic, our advances in long-term therapy and the search for an HIV vaccine and an HIV cure. Now we will end by focusing on what it's like to treat patients with HIV. Dr. Wendy Armstrong is an infectious disease specialist at Emory University. She is the medical director of the Ponce de Leon Center in Atlanta and is chair-elect of the HIV Medicine Association, a national organization of medical professionals who practice HIV medicine. We spoke with her about common barriers to care and were surprised to learn that the southeastern United States is now the center of the HIV epidemic in this country. So I'm the medical director at what is one of the largest HIV clinics in the country, um, which is the Ponce Center. And we care for more than 5,700 patients who are mostly un- and underinsured. A tiny minority of those patients have uh, insurance, private insurance. About half have Medicaid or Medicare, and about half are on a federal assistance program. Early on, as you know, 
um, patients came to clinics to have support to help them die. And it really was um, a palliative care clinic. Uh, we had fantastic nurses and um, incredibly dedicated doctors who would really try and extend life as long as possible, but knowing that that was a pretty short window. Very good therapies became available and patients started living much longer. That said, unfortunately, uh, Atlanta is the center of the epidemic, or the southeast is the center of the epidemic in the United States still. And so unlike many places, uh, New York City with Bellevue Hospital, San Francisco, Vancouver, even Washington, D.C., um, Atlanta still has a very uh, thriving, if you will, epidemic with many of our patients being diagnosed very, very late in disease and a lot of old-time HIV infection. There is no organism in the history of the universe that's been studied this much. The challenge is getting patients diagnosed, into care, um, uh, get access to medications, and then remain on medications for long periods of time despite lots of other barriers in life. One of the um, biggest reasons I hear from patients about uh, why they may not want to come to clinic is uh, concern that they'll be seen walking into clinic and uh, that that will make it apparent to others that they have HIV. Um, many patients are nervous about telling family members or even getting tested because of the consequences of stigma. Uh, stigma is alive and well, particularly again in the southeast where the epidemic is at its worst uh, right now. Young men who have sex with men are a population that's growing um, uh, as far as uh, a group that has uh, increasing rates of HIV infection. And, and that's a population often, again, where their sexual uh, identity has been um, kept uh, in the shadows in large part because of concerns about stigma, for example. When someone comes to clinic and they may be very sick, or they may not be very sick, but you realize that it's, it's a struggle to keep that patient in care. And again, sometimes that's mental health issues, sometimes that's substance use problems, sometimes that's denial, sometimes that's um, being homeless and life is really hard and there are more obstacles for that patient to successfully stay in care than you can ever imagine dealing with in your own life. And those are the tragedies is that, you know, periodically there's someone that no matter how many resources or how hard we try or how much we care or how much that person um, tells you that they care, we just can't get over that hump to make that happen smoothly. And those are the tragic cases, I think, that we all think about. The other ones are um, young patients or even older patients, but it's particularly tragic in the young who come in and were diagnosed late and don't even have the opportunity to get on effective medications before they die. And those, again, just, just rip your heart out. They really are tough. Um, uh, on the flip side, the majority of people that we see with a new diagnosis we can tell them that they will grow old from with this disease, they will live to see their children graduate from college, that uh, they can have a relatively normal life. And, and then we watch people gain weight and come back to health, and it's an incredible thing. One um, year ago, uh, two members of the Board of Commission, uh, Commissioners for Fulton County, the Chairman John Eaves and Commissioner Joan Garner, heard a lot of the statistics about HIV in our community in Fulton County and said, what can we do? And they um, created a task force um, called the Fulton County Task Force for HIV AIDS 
which were a group of individuals who were experts in all kinds of different areas associated with HIV. So it might, it was medical people and it's community people and it's folks involved in housing and so on and so forth and asked that group to come up with some guidance. The group uh, chose to develop a strategy to end AIDS in Fulton County. And the initial phase of that, phase one, which is a series of very detailed objectives with metrics and targets for how we can achieve that, is, will be released uh, on World AIDS Day, December 1st, down uh, at the Fulton County Government Building with uh, Chairman Eves and Commissioner Garner. So we're very excited about that and hope that that is the beginning of a blueprint for Fulton County to really tackle the problem. And we hope that it's a blueprint then that will spread to surrounding counties as well. Um, when HIV first uh, became apparent in the early 80s, um, was it feasible that we could be where we are today? No, it sure wasn't. Um, and again, there was no opportunity to end the epidemic in the early 80s because we had nothing that was active against the virus. And even when we discovered some drugs active against the virus, there was no opportunity to actually make the virus undetectable. It's important to note that if in an individual we treat them and the virus becomes undetectable in their blood, meaning that our tests aren't good enough to detect it, uh, meaning that the levels are very, very low, the chance of that person transmitting to someone else, regardless of condom use, et cetera, is virtually zero. And so our best prevention measure is treating people who have infection. It doesn't just prolong the life, although it certainly does, of the person with infection, but it absolutely changes the population dynamics and reduces the chance of transmission to anyone else. And so that's how we treat ourselves out of this epidemic, is finding everybody who's infected and treating them so that there's no further transmission. Um, and we couldn't have ever conceived that that could happen in the early 80s. We hope this episode has given you a greater appreciation for the rapid identification, understanding, and response to HIV. What was once considered a death sentence can now be a chronic disease with medication that is available today. But there is still work to be done, not only in the development of a vaccine and a cure, but in getting care to those who need it and in overcoming the stigma that is still attached to this diagnosis. We would like to thank Drs. James Curran, Wendy Armstrong, Dennis Leota, Guido Silvestri, and Jeff Safrit for their time and expertise. To suggest a topic for our next episode, tweet us at odyssey underscore podcast. Odyssey was created by Dave Matthews and Taryn McLaughlin with special help from Allison Stevenson, Marika Vialichko, and Michael Evans. Special thanks to Ansar Abbas, Brindar Suhas, Yoon Wei, and Alessandra Salguero. Odyssey is supported by Emory University's SciComm. The opinions expressed on Odyssey do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for more students telling the story of science.